Turn your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5. It's been said that the Sermon on the Mount is one of the hardest sermons to love because it is so forceful. It's so outside of the norm. In order to agree with the Sermon on the Mount and every jot and every tittle, one must truly be perfect. So it's not easy to read through this sermon. It's not easy to preach this sermon. It's it's convicting. It's humiliating at times. And we should not approach it lightly. And I don't think that we necessarily are. But I think we need, as we go about our day, to take heed to the words that are given here. To not brush them off as extreme. You know, we've, we've listened to many, many people try to sell something to us. You know, trying to, you know, the, the, the door-to-door salesman bringing by his vacuum cleaner. And he's making it sound like it's the best thing that's ever been invented. Vacuum cleaners certainly are helpful, but it's certainly not the best thing you're ever going to see for the rest of your life. But that's how the salesman tries to make it sound. And in a way, sometimes we approach Scripture as though a salesman's coming to our door, puffing something up to this obscene, into this obscene image that's completely unrealistic, and we easily blow him off. We easily see through his, his disguise. You're just trying to sell me something. You're just trying to make it sound better than it really is so that you can upcharge it and get more money out of me. You know, we just got a new vacuum cleaner because our old one died. And we vacuumed over the, the floor and all this dirt's coming up and all this dirt is filling the tank. I mean, we had been vacuuming with the old vacuum, but apparently, you know, we can see now that it hasn't been working very well. Because <laughs> we're pulling up all this dirt and all this filth with this new vacuum cleaner. And, uh, and, and if you've ever had a vacuum cleaner salesman come to your door, um, they'll do the same thing. They'll bring you a vacuum cleaner and they'll, they'll tell you, hey, let me, let me vacuum this, this room. And I'll, you know, I'll show you how much better my vacuum is to your vacuum. Because they already know that a vacuum cleaner that's been used for a couple of years isn't going to do as well as a brand new vacuum. So it's obviously going to look better because it's brand, the one he's using is brand new. And any brand new vacuum cleaner is going to look way better than the one that you have at home. Because it's brand new. So they, they do this to, to, to deceive you into thinking that this is a vacuum cleaner is better than any other vacuum cleaner out there. But you and I know that they're just trying to sell you a product so that they can make a commission. The, the salesman himself doesn't even care about the vacuum cleaner. His life's work is not, is not consummated in this one vacuum cleaner that he's trying to sell. What he's trying to do is make a commission. And we know that. The people walking you around the, the car lot, they're trying to make a commission. They don't care. I mean, people care about cars, but they don't care about you getting this car. They care about it, their commission, their pay. So they're going to upsell stuff. They're going to puff things up. Make it sound better than it really is. They're going to tell you this car is practically a spaceship. To make it seem way, way better value than it really is. And sometimes 
we approach Scripture similarly, where we just view it as he's just upcharging, he's just upselling. He's, he's going above and beyond what reality really is just because he's trying to, you know, get disciples. We may not say that word for word in our brain, but, but the way we dismiss it, the way we read it, and we think, wow, that's quite a statement. And then we dismiss it as impossible. We dismiss it as, well, he must be communicating something differently. Well, you know, I, I can't attain to that. I mean, I'm saved by the grace of God. I'm just going to move on. Jesus is not puffing something up and making it something that it's not. He's not trying to upsell a product. In this passage, it's supposed to sound hard because it is. It's supposed to sound impossible because it is. That's the reality of it. And the whole purpose of this Sermon on the Mount is the law was introduced in the Old Testament was God introducing something that the people could not manage by themselves so that they would learn to trust in God. So that they would learn to fall on the mercy of God. In this Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is introducing a kingdom that you can only participate in through the power of the Holy Spirit. Jesus is introducing a kingdom that you cannot accomplish because of your abilities and your, your natural mind. The natural mind can accomplish a lot of things. The natural mind can create a Fortune 500 company. The natural mind can make millions of dollars. The natural mind can, you know, you've seen many, I, have you ever been to a, a uh, what do you want to call it? I don't know exactly what it's called. But it's, it's kind of like a conference where they invite you to this hall because they want to sell you something. I've been to one of these sales conferences before where this guy was trying to teach me how to um, flip houses. And all along, he's also introducing this. If you, if you subscribe to this plan, we'll give you one-on-one instructions. You'll have a personal instructor who's going to walk you through this process. You just have to pay us $30,000 up front. But it's worth it, because once you get, flip your first house, you can make triple that. And, they, and you sit there, and this conference that I actually went to was three, was three to four days long. And each day, it gets a little more intense. They try to rope you in a little bit more each day, each day. <clears throat> and these people who are doing these things are making tens of thousands of dollars, millions of dollars on a broader scale. And they're so convincing. They're so good at what they're doing. They sound so eloquent. It's, they speak in such a way that it's like, how could I ever think that you were wrong? Look at all this proof. And all of this is coming from the natural mind. And there are churches around the United States that use similar tactics. And I don't want to put down any particular church, but the natural mind... The natural man can build a large congregation. We can do a lot with our natural selves. But Jesus here in this sermon is introducing something that cannot be accomplished by the natural man. 
the reason we read out of 1 Corinthians chapter, the reason Rich read out of 1 Corinthians chapter 1, let me just reiterate this. Verse 26 says, For you see your calling, brethren, that not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. And why would that be? If it weren't because, I mean, if this was something, God was just trying to find talented folk for his team. You know, the, uh, the, uh, the basketball scout, he's looking for talent. He's going to high schools looking for the best talent to recruit to the university. But that's not how God is going to and fro throughout the earth. He's not going around looking for talent. He's not going around looking for good minds. He's not going around looking for the experienced. For you see your calling, brethren, that not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. Those people can't walk according to the kingdom of God with as many skills as they have, as much experience as they have living life. Those people, these noble, these wise, the mighty, they can't get themselves into the kingdom of God by their might, by their wisdom, the wealth that they've produced. But in verse 27, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame, to put, but to, put to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things that are mighty. And the base things of the world and the things which are despised, God has chosen. And the things which are not to bring to nothing the things that are. So right there you see God's world is completely upside down from the world that man likes to participate in. God does not judge by outward appearance. Does he? He did not pick David's oldest brother to be king. He picked David. The people picked Saul because he was great and mighty, taller than any other man, strong, good looking. But God picked David, the least in his family, a shepherd boy, musician, to rule armies. Because God doesn't do things the way you want things to be done. You you and I want things to be done in such a manner that I can handle it. I want to handle it. I want to be able to put it in an Excel spreadsheet, moderate it, quantify it. That's how I want to do things. I want to see how is progress being made. That's how salespeople work. That's how I did it when I was a real estate agent. What's working? What's not working? So I can make changes, can quantify it, qualify it. So I can manage it. I want to manage this. But God didn't pick the people to be part of his kingdom that he thought could manage it properly. He didn't pick people because he thought that they were sufficient to be able to handle all of this stuff. Now, in fact... He did complete the opposite of what we expect. He picked the ones, he's picking people 
who have nothing to offer the kingdom. He's picking people that they don't know what they're doing. (laughs) They don't have what it takes. And when you look at the Sermon on the Mount and you truly look at it with humility, you'll realize that none of us have what it takes. None of us do. We have to rely on the Holy Spirit if we're going to walk according to the kingdom of God, the true kingdom of God. And we've said some very difficult things in the last few weeks. Very hard things in the last few weeks. And we are not supposed to approach this as though, I can do this. I got this. This is easy. Look at everything I've done. I have plenty of experience in this. I've got all these skills. I have just the right character traits. Just the right personality to make this happen. Because once we start doing that, we exit the kingdom of God, and we enter the kingdom of man. Whenever we do things in our own power, we are not living in the kingdom of God. We're living according to the kingdom of man. And the Sermon on the Mount was supposed to be revolutionary. Because Jesus is not telling you how you can live a better life. Jesus is not telling you how you can handle life better. He's giving you The synopsis of the kingdom of God, a kingdom that is outside of your ability to control. You don't have what it takes on the inside in the natural man to walk in this way. And we come to another difficult part of the passage here. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 43 through the end of the chapter. And this is essentially the last practical little topical study Jesus is dealing with in this sermon. After this, we get to chapter 6, and He gives some more wisdom, some more instruction, but not in the same way. But in verse 43, He says, You have heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbor. Okay, we understand that part. We know that's in the Bible. We know that's in Leviticus chapter 19 in the law. But then he adds, and hate your enemy. What in the world is that all about? Where is that in the scripture? Raise your hand if you know where the Bible says, hate your enemy. (laughs) Right there. (laughs) Right there. (laughs) And Jesus is about to demolish it. That wasn't, that's not actually in the Scriptures. The Bible doesn't actually say, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. See, in Leviticus chapter 19, if you want to look there real quick, that's not the whole passage. And many times Jesus is just giving you the, the, the noticeable, the important part of the passage. But let's see a little bit of the context to this. Leviticus chapter 19, we're just looking at a couple verses, verses 17 and 18. Leviticus 19, 17, and 18. He says, You shall not hate your brother in your heart. You shall surely rebuke your neighbor and not bear sin because of him. You shall not take vengeance nor bear any grudge against the children of your people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. 
I am the Lord. Okay, so he's telling us, don't hate your brother. In fact, you should love your brother and rebuke him when he's wrong. Not in hate, but in love. Don't take vengeance. Don't seek restitution from your own people. Don't bear grudges against your own people. But love your neighbor as you would love yourself. I am the Lord. He follows it up. And he says there, you shall not hate your brother. And in this day, people were taking this extremely out of context. Jesus says, don't hate your brother. But it doesn't say don't hate your enemy. And I get to determine who my brother is. (laughs) Who my fellow is. In fact, a man trying to justify himself asked Jesus the question, and who is my neighbor? To which Jesus responded, you are their neighbor. (laughs) You are everybody's neighbor. You need to be good to everybody, regardless of who they are. It's not about who you're supposed to be good to, it's that you are to be good to all men. And the people at this time, the teachers in particular, were taking... Have you ever heard the word imprecatory? (laughs) Imprecatory psalms, imprecatory passages. Basically, imprecatory passages were passages where a... Typically, it's a psalm where David is crying out against the enemies of God. You know, for instance, in Psalm 159, verse 10, he says, The righteous shall rejoice when he sees vengeance. He shall wash his feet in the blood of the wicked. That would be an imprecatory psalm where it seems like he's rejoicing in the thought of the wicked being destroyed. And people are taking, even today, I've had conversations with people that say, we're supposed to pray these types of prayers against individuals. Like this enemy of mine, this enemy of the gospel, we're supposed to pray that God will smite them. But that's not taking this in context of what it's for, what imprecatory psalms were for. They were judicial, they were beseeching the Lord that His will would be done over the wicked. Rejoicing in the good, rejoicing in the righteousness, hating wickedness, but not giving you individual right to look at somebody and say, I hate them and I want them to die. These people, these leaders were teaching the people, you're supposed to love your fellow Jews who are operating in the type of Judaism that we are subscribing here. But you're not supposed to love anybody who is not practicing this Judaism. You're supposed to hate those people. You're not supposed to to love and do good for those who are living outside of your scope of right and wrong. You're only supposed to love the people, essentially what they were teaching. You're only supposed to love the people who are like you. That's your neighbor. The people who are like you. But the, and the people were teaching, I read a poem by an unknown author. It says, Believe as I believe, no more, no less, that I am right and no one else confess. Feel as I feel, think only as I think. Eat what I eat and drink what I drink. Look as I look, do always as I do. Then and then only will I fellowship with you. And this is how the people were operating. This is what the people were learning. This is what the leaders were teaching in so many words. 
that you love your neighbor, okay? You love your fellow Jew, but you hate everybody else. Everybody else is your enemy, especially those Romans. Hate them. Pray for their destruction. And Jesus is saying, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But Jesus is turning this upside down, this, this formulation of man. And he says in verse 44, But I say to you, love your enemies. Bless those who curse you. Do good to those who hate you. And pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you. Now, to, I'll get back to this in a second. Why is it, this is a question to think about, why is it that we don't really consider animals to be sinners? Have you ever thought about that before? I mean, animals kill, animals disobey. My dog is dumb <laughs> and doesn't ever do what he's told. Why don't we consider animals to be sinners? Because they weren't created in the image of God. You and I were. And sin is essentially tearing to shreds that image of God that, that we were created with. Separating ourselves from unification with God. And why don't we, and similarly... Those of us who have had children, why don't you expect other people's children to operate by your house rules? Okay? Why don't you expect other people's kids to operate by your house rules? Because they're your house rules. Those kids are not part of your house. Your kids are expected to play by your house rules. But other people's children, they have their own parents. I'm not going to... I'm not the parent of everybody's children. But my children are to follow my ways that I've put before them. And he said, I think it's significant because this is the only time Jesus does this in these examples here. He says in verse 45, if you do this, you do this, that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. He doesn't say he doesn't say this with any of the other example, any of the other topical studies that he's going through. And we could talk about why for a long time. But he says, if you love your enemies, bless those who curse you, do good to those who hate you, and pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you. This is sure evidence that you are the children of God. And he does it again in verse 48. Therefore you shall be perfect, just as your Father in heaven is perfect. If you do this, you will be like God. Which tells us, wow, this cannot be easy. And any of you who have ever had an enemy in your life know that it's not easy, is it? To love an enemy? And the word here is agape. Agape love. Agape love has been misconstrued as intimate marital love. 
It is used to describe marital love, but in general, agape love is simply a deep, sincere love with fortitude. An enduring love. Strong love that's deep and sincere. And he's saying, I say to you, agape, your enemies. Have an enduring love with your enemies. You and I know life gets very messy, especially when dealing with people who are not like us. So sometimes, in order to minimize the mess, we just separate ourselves from people who are not like us. It's not as much about the fact that they're wrong as much as it is that you just want to be organized. You, want to, you don't want the mess. You don't want to deal with the frustrations of the mess that relationships come with that are dealing with all sorts of different types of people. How many close friendships, how many bonds do you have with people from the other side of the tracks? But rather we live like the Hatfields and the McCoys. Really? Because we, not because, you know, most of us won't speak bitterness towards other people. But we certainly won't be seen with them. Those other people from the other side of the tracks. When I was in college, when I was, should I say, when I was going into college, I was full of it. (laughs) I I had an upbringing where I went to church all the time and we were blessed to be in churches that really did a great job teaching truth. I had a good foundation in scripture from the time I was a couple of weeks old and entered the church for the first time. And I started preaching on and off when I was 16 years old. My pastor was um, very good at giving me opportunities to stand in front of people. And he trained, you know, he did some training with me before ever even going into college. So when I got to college, I thought these first two years are going to be a breeze. I'm going to be able to teach all these other people how to be a good Christian because of all that I've accomplished and all that I've been given from other people. I was so full of myself. Little did I know that somebody from the other side of the tracks could come into my life and show me that somebody who is completely unlike me could have such a, more, such a deeper and more sincere walk with God than I have ever had in my life. But I never would have even thought it were possible unless I had met these people. People that had been saved for only a year. But yet they seemed to have more wisdom. More understanding of the deep truths of God's love than I ever had. Because they were from the other side of the tracks. They They had a rough life. They struggled with swearing. They listened to rock and roll. They had all these problems, so to speak, (laughs) that I didn't have. I should be teaching them. But no, I I found myself humbled, learning from them. 
And we, we, li- we like to live our lives so separated from the world around us that we don't even know what kind of beauty is out there. We don't even, we're like Isaiah sometimes. I'm the only one following God. We're the only ones who are actually walking with God when God says, no, no, no. I have several thousand people serving me, bowing the knee before me rather than Baal. You don't know them. You've not met them. But they're there and I have reserved them for myself. And there are many times where we we just, in order to avoid a messier life, we seclude ourselves because people are messy. I mean, people are the ones that cause all the problems, right? <laughs> people who are different than us, people who have different personalities than us, people who struggle with different sins than we do. They're the ones that cause all the problems. I just want to be stable. I just want security. I just want to sit down and rest without having to deal with shenanigans. Relationships are messy. And how many of us can truly say we have a deep, vibrant relationship with several people, let alone several people that are not like us in very many ways, and also who do not bear our last name? Because the people who bear our last name are kind of forced into a relationship with you, (laughs) so to speak, sometimes. Jesus is saying, love your enemies. Have an enduring love with Not just the people who are not like you, but the people who do not like you. They will inevitably be people who are not like you. That's why they don't like you. (laughs) He says, love those people. Love your enemies. Instead of cursing those who curse you, bless those who curse you. Seek to be a blessing to those who hate you. Those who would do harm to you. Those who would see you on the floor in pain, rise up and bless them. Those people who are slapping you on the right cheek, rise up and bless them. Do good to those who hate you. See that word, do good to those who hate you. Don't just tolerate their hatred, which is sometimes what we do. We just kind of retract, we step back, we isolate ourselves from those people, and we just kind of deal with it, (laughs) deal with the shock of their hatred towards us. But Jesus is saying, step forward, get into their life and do good for them. Do good to them. See to it that they are blessed. Do what is opposite to the human nature. The human nature, when it feels pain, it it pulls its hand back. When you touch that hot stove, you pull your hand back. And sometimes in a bitter relationship, what do you do? You break the relationship when that person becomes toxic. You break that relationship and you run away. Our natural inclination is to just separate from the thing that's causing harm. From the thing that you don't like. From the thing that you can't stand. You separate from it. But Jesus is saying, no. That's natural human nature. 
But that's not God's nature. Because God, the, the overarching story of redemption is not God backing away from humanity, is it? The overarching story of God's love and redemption is God getting into you. Those of us who have hated Him, those of us who have sinned and walked away from Him, the overarching story of redemption is Him going out of His way to get into you and bless you, to do good for you. This is how we can be sons of God, the children of God, not by separating from everybody that we don't like, that we don't agree with, from everybody who hates us and would wish us harm. If you want to be like God, you do what God has shown us in thousands of pages of Him entering into the lives of haters and doing good for them, loving them, pulling them out of the mire, overlooking with love so that He could forgive them, bring them into Christ, make them His children, make, give them His name, give them His inheritance when once they were afar off, hating, despising. Paul said, God is using me as an example of how people are being saved. What's, what's the example of Paul's life? Paul, a hater. He, he fought against Christianity. But then Jesus showed up on the scene, made him a disciple, transformed him into somebody completely different, gave him even a new name, and set him out on the path to see the same grace brought into the lives of others. That's how people are saved. A hater. Somebody who's afar off. The least likely to come to Christ is brought to Christ because God showed up on their scene, blinded their eyes, and when He opened their eyes, everything was new. Everything was new. And yet we think that it's in our rights to just separate from everybody that we're not comfortable with. Especially those, hatred, those hateful people, those harmful people. That's not God's story. Why do you think he says, so that you may be the sons of your Father in heaven? Is he saying that this is how you're saved? No, this is how it's saying that this is what it's like to be like God. This is what it's like to be like God. If you're going to put it up in a nutshell, it's going to be like this. You are living out the story of redemption. When you do good, seek good, seek to bless people who hate you. That's living out the story of redemption in Scripture. And he goes on and he says, Pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you. <clears throat> Pray for them. Do we pray for people? I mean, this, sometimes this is the first step in doing good. And it, be practical, okay? It's hard to just overwrite the natural man in a situation where somebody came out against you, somebody offended you, 
somebody stood up against you and you're taken back. Where did that come from? I don't, that's not comfortable. So let's be practical here. One of the first things that you can do in doing good for those who hate you and that you might be tempted to hate is to pray for them. To pray for them. Now, I'm not going to name names, but I've talked to people who were in a war, Vietnam, or whatever war it was, and those people admittedly have a hard time liking people from that country where they served, because they were trained for years to kill those people, to hate those people, to use vulgar language when speaking about those people. And that's kind of how we're trained as human beings. If somebody wants to come out against you, well, you come back. You come back. You get yours. You stand up for yourself. You know, and we're trained. Oh, if somebody's a such and such denomination. Oh, they're, they're horrible people. How could they believe such a thing? We can't, we, can't inter- we can't interact with those people. Our brains are nat- naturally tend to separate from the people who are not like us, especially those people that we're trained to not like. And one of the ways that we can start piercing through that cloud is to pray for them. I pray for so-and-so. And pray for them the way you would want. That you, If you were them and you saw the truth, how would you pray for yourself if you were them? Like I said, let's be practical here. How do you pray for people that, that hate you? How do you pray for people who are miserably vulgar and vile? Do we pray imprecatory prayers? God destroy them? No. We pray a prayer like if we were them, how would we pray for how would we want to be prayed for? Do we want people praying to God that we would be destroyed? No, God, open their eyes to see the truth. Draw them out of the slavery that's holding them in captivity. Lord, these people, they, they, they might be warring against me, but I know that they're, they're not really warring against me because this battle is not flesh and blood. God, help me to not be so full of myself as to think that everything's about me. That their hatred is all about me. God, pull them out of the darkness that they're in. And as we pray for these people, as we pray for people who've stood up against us, perhaps there are old wounds, old scabs, old scars of people in our past. Start praying for those people. Start praying for them. People that have hurt you. People that have run off. People that have hated you. People that you've had a rift with and there's never been any reconciliation. You know those people. We pray for them. For their good. Not that, I pray Lord that they would see the light or die. (laughs) 
No. We just pray for their good. And when opportunity arises, we actually do physically do good for them. If we've wronged somebody in the past, make reconciliation, make restitution, like Nicodemus. Not Nicodemus, Zacchaeus. When he met Jesus, Jesus didn't even preach the gospel to him. He just came to Zacchaeus' house, and Zacchaeus was like, okay, everything that I've stolen from anybody, I'll I'll restore it sevenfold. (laughs) Restore it with love to anybody that you've hurt. Even though they may still hate you, even though they may hold it against you, restore it. Make that point of contact. And you know what happens when you start doing good for people who hate you? You want me to say relationships are always restored. But what typically happens is things get messy. I don't need your charity. I don't want that. Get away from me. I don't want to talk to you. That's what you hear. More times than not. But does that keep... Remember, agape is... It's a strong love. It's an enduring love. It's got fortitude. What good is fortitude if it's easy? What good is... A great elasticity in a rubber band if you're never going to actually pull it. If it's just going to sit there and do nothing. And he, he goes in, he goes on this subject. Look at verse 45. He says, So that you may be the sons of your Father in heaven, for he makes his son to rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and the unjust. And Luke, he says, on the unthankful and the evil, as he's recounting this message. He's doing good. <laughs> you know, some of the most hard, the hardest people to do good for are the people who are never going to thank you. <laughs> the unthankful, they just take it, consume, ask for more. <laughs> Those are some of the hardest people to do good for. But who is God good to? The unthankful and the evil. Why? Because his love endures forever. He's got fortitude in his love. And if you want to be sons of the Father, you will have fortitude in your love. But he goes on in verse 46, For if you love those who love you, what reward have you? Do not even tax collectors do the same? Tax collectors were considered to be an abomination to the audience that Jesus is teaching to. They were Jews that had defected to the Roman government. (laughs) And now we're working for the Roman government. And they were viewed as even worse than the Romans because of their defection. For if you, if you love those who love you, what reward have you? Don't even, detect, don't even these abominable people do the same thing. And let's be honest, in our flesh, we have a hard enough time loving people who love us. We have a hard enough time loving on our own spouse. We're selfish with our own family. We're selfish with our own friends, with our own uh, church members. We come out against our own church members. We try to outdo our own church members, our own family members, our own friends. We have a hard enough time with that. But he's saying, I mean, that's, I mean, not even if you love the people who are easy to love, there's no reward in that. What reward have you? Don't you? I mean, this is something that the natural man can do. I'm trying to bleed you into something that the natural man doesn't do. 
If you do the things that the natural man can do, there's no reward in that. There's no spiritual fruit in that because it's not spiritual, it's natural. Does that make sense? If you're walking according to the natural man, there's no fruitfulness there in the spirit. And the natural man can do lots of good things. What reward do you have if you do good for those who love you? And he goes in verse 47, And if you greet your brethren only, what do you do more than others? Don't even the tax collectors do that? And that greet meaning that close bond. That the greeting in those days was a lot more intimate than, Hey, how you doing? Walk away. <laughs> it wasn't like that. Greetings were vibrant, full. They were a symbol of unity and love and acceptance and brotherhood. It says, if you greet your brethren only, what do you do more than others? We need to latch on to people that aren't like us. Ah, I love you. We've been taught not to do that, though. You're not supposed to be friends of sinners. At least not their best friend. You know, everything you do with, your, with a sinner has to be to convert them, which we should long for their conversion. But the point Jesus is making here is we need to be oh, holding tight to people that are not even like you. Loving them. Wanting to be deeply involved in their lives. We have a hard enough time doing that with people that we love. We like our solitude. We like, we like our space. I mean, I'm, I'm one to admit this. Like even with my own kids, I hate it when my kids are all up in my face. I just need my space. <laughs> you know? And sometimes we're like that in our relationships. Just give me my space. I just want to go home and be by myself. We have a hard enough time greeting, loving, latching on to people that are easy to latch on to, relatively speaking. Why? Because we just want our own space. Jesus is, Jesus is challenging us. No, if you're going to walk in the Spirit, not only are you going to be latching on to the people who are like you, who are easy to love, you're going to have lots of those latchings. You're even going to be doing it to the people who are hard to do that too. You're going to be trying to latch on to people who hate you. You're going to be trying to latch on to people who are miserable. People. Yeah, they may not be your natural, they may not be nat- your natural choice of person who you want to spend every waking moment with, and that's not the point either. Jesus is not saying that you need to go and spend every waking moment with somebody who's hard. But he's saying, if you're walking in the Spirit, you're not going to be walking according to this separation mindset. Who can I get rid of? You're going to be walking with this mindset that's saying, who can I bless? Who can I unite with? Who can I latch on to? Who can I love? And you're going to also include the people who hate you in that mix. That, per- that neighbor, that person who, who cheated you in that business deal. You're going to let it go. You're going to forgive. And you're going to go back to that person. And you're going to say, hey, why don't you come over and have, well, let's go have lunch together. Let's go talk. I want to get to know you. How can I bless you? Here's a, here's a gift card. I know you cheated me out of money. You're not going to say that. 
But you know what? That's one of the ways that we can show love to those who have hurt you. Did somebody cheat you out of money? Give them a gift card. Heap coals of flame on their heads. Not because you want them to burn. But that's what happens when somebody walks in the Spirit. The people around you are driven crazy because they don't understand. How in the world could this happen? How could this be happening? Why? He knows that I cheated him. Why is he giving me this blessing? And sometimes that's exactly how people come to Christ. I very rarely do I ever see anybody or hear testimonies of anybody coming to Christ because of these dry door-knocking endeavors. Most of the time, if somebody's going to be brought to Christ, it's going to be through somebody showing extravagant love. Love that doesn't make any sense. That's when most people are really start to see, wait, maybe this Christ thing is legitimate. Because people, people are logical beings, but not always. They can hear your message of Jesus. They can see how it logically computes and makes sense according to what the Bible says. They can understand that. But that's not going to compel them to actually make it theirs. You, your love, will compel them. It will be compelling to those who are called. It remains foolishness to those whose eyes have not been opened. Okay? Just because you love on somebody doesn't mean that they're guaranteed to come to Christ. And frankly, this passage isn't about evangelism. This passage is about you being like God. This is a passage about you being the sons of your Father. Sons and daughters. And you're not like God when you simply do good to those who are easy to do good to. That's kind of expected, even according to human nature. It says in verse 38, Therefore you shall be perfect, just as your Father in heaven is perfect. Complete. That's what that word means, complete. This is completeness. If this is something that becomes natural to you, then it's because of the Spirit. It's not because of the natural man. If loving your enemies becomes second nature to you, first nature to you, should I say, for all things become old things are passed away. So if loving your enemy becomes first nature, then that is proof that you are the children of God. And I don't want to lie to you. I don't want to I don't want you to be deceived into thinking that. If we're we're truly legitimately saved, everything becomes easy. Because that's not true either. But, it becomes vibrant in you. And it's something that you actually long for. And it's something that you have fortitude in. Anybody can try a little bit here, try a little bit there, give up, back away. But if you have fortitude in your love for the hard people... then you can know God's doing this work in me. God is the one making this possible. If there is sincerity in your prayers for those people that want nothing to do with you, 
If those people that hate you, they persecute you, they've been using you. If you can pray for those people with sincerity, not out of obligation, then you know that's from the Spirit. I know the Spirit's at work in this. Because I could not do this in my natural man. If you can go out of your way to bless somebody who hates you, who has done anything in their power to not bless you, and you can do it, not out of compulsion, but with joy, you know that's from the Spirit. Because that's not something the natural man does. We need to stop justifying our disdain for people. We need to stop justifying our separation from people that we're not like. And we need to start justifying God and what He says. Saying that He is right. His king, I mean, if it was hard to do, then it would not be the kingdom of God that you were seeking. I mean, if it... I take that I said that the wrong way. <laughs> if it was not if it was not hard for your natural person to do, then it would not be the kingdom of God that you were seeking. You know, technically I'm not supposed to use double negatives in a sentence. <laughs> but if it was easy for you, then you know you're pursuing the natural course of life. And it's easy to separate from people that, are, that you don't like. It's easy to justify, well, they did this to me, so I can do this to them. It's easy to justify those things. But what did, what did we see in Leviticus? Don't take vengeance. We even saw that last week, or two weeks ago. An eye for an eye, a tooth for tooth. But I say to you, we talked about that. And I just want to urge you in this last little bit to justify God to see that he is right in all that he says and that just because you can't do it doesn't mean he's wrong the fact that you can't do it means that the thing that you can't do is probably part of the kingdom of God and you need the Holy Spirit to work in you to do it you need to first and foremost pray for your own soul that you would be sincere in Christ, and that you would be like the Father. You pray and ask the Lord that He would make you like Him. And then as you're praying, you pray for those other people. And as you're praying for those other people, you start putting together plans for how you can bless those people. And as you make those plans, you carry out those plans to bless those people. And as, those, as you're carrying out those plans to bless those people... And those people are coming against you. You hunker down. You put your feet to the ground. And you stay the course in the midst of the harsh weather. And as you stay in the course, your agape love develops more and more fortitude. And as you're developing more and more fortitude in your love, you become more and more like your Father in heaven who never turned His back on us who went out of his way to come down and bless us infinitely above the way we could bless anybody else. Just know that this endeavor is a gospel endeavor because we are doing 
in our little spheres what God did on a grand scale when He sent Jesus Christ, pierced the clouds, pierced His hands and His feet, so that you could be saved from your sins, so that you could be recipients of infinite goodness. So would we withhold goodness from any other person? Would we say, well, they don't deserve it? Well, what about the gospel? Did you deserve the gospel? No, you didn't. So your your self-justification flies out the window because of the gospel. So we need to walk in faith. We need to walk in pursuit of Christ and living the life that He lived. We can't save people from their sins. We're not going to go crucify ourselves on a cross and save people from their sins. That's not, our, that's not God's will for you. God's will for you is love your enemies. Love them in a very practical way. Not just in a theological way. It's fun to talk about and with the fellow believers. Get your right hand and your left hand out there in the community and bless those who are hard to bless. Latch on to those people who are, who are slippery. And let's go and be like our Father in Heaven. God, I thank You for how good you are to us. I thank you for your gospel. Lord, I pray for that these feeble words would have been united in the spirit and the minds of the hearers so that we can go out together and live differently, to be more like you, to be complete in the Not because of my works, but because of your work that gives the whole foundation for how we can do any of this. Pray that you would help us to humble ourselves in the face of opposition, that we'd be willing to be a doormat sometimes. Just because we love you and we love those around us. Forgive us for straying from the straight and narrow path. Pray that you would help us to walk in the hard things and thus be like you. In Jesus' name, amen.